Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I am the uh, senior pastor here, and we are glad you're here with us. What a great reminder uh, in the song previous to the last one of how we know what love is and how we understand God's love for us, and then to sing of the degree and the infinite manner in which our God loves us is a great reminder. And so thanks to our worship team for leading us in that. As you know, or if you're new, you don't know, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, We've called this a dangerous church as we are studying the early church and the way that they had dramatic and immediate impacts on their communities in ways that threatened some of the uh, systems and structures in their culture that were opposed to God and really posed a grave danger to them. And so, as we study what it is to be the church and to move forward advancing the gospel, we want to jump into the book of Acts. And maybe to provide a little bit of clarity, we, uh, we did a little bit of pinball in the past few weeks, so we'll, we'll kind of maybe straighten some out and uh, provide some direction for where we're headed in the future. Uh, we had a few weeks ago, David Lonis, one of our missionaries, come in, and he preached from Acts, Acts chapter 3, which we then followed by Mother's Day, and then the second half of Acts chapter 2. We're pretty smooth with our counting that way. Um, and the reason we did that is, guys, the, we had told David that we wanted him to really cover Acts chapter 3. And initially, Acts chapter 2 was one chunk in our study, and we felt like we needed to cover that kind of independently. And so we wanted one of our guys to cover Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, uh, that we did last week. And I want to thank John for the hard work he did, not only in the text, but uncovering all the different ministries of our church and the way that that we're trying to fulfill those. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to either of those sermons, either Acts chapter 2 from last week or Acts chapter 3 from a few weeks ago, I want to encourage you to go to our podcast and download those. There will be some really good information for you, uh, some really exceptional teaching that I believe challenges us all. And so now where we're at today is we're getting back on track and we're in Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 22. And uh, so that's where we'll spend our time today. This sermon has been entitled Courageous Church because in this passage we see some pretty exceptional courage from two of the apostles as they lead the church, which I think will uncover some significant challenges for us as we engage our culture as well as we engage our brothers and sisters here in the church. We're going to find the significance of courage. But before we jump into that, there's a few um, areas of our ministry that I would like you to pray for. Uh, both of these are happening in other countries. One is we have two of our guys, Casey Crumby and John Qualls in Mozambique right now drilling water wells so that the folks in the villages in and around they, where they are going can have fresh water to drink and to, feed, and to give their children, which is maybe something we don't ever think about, um, that there are people all over the world that don't have basic fresh water to give their children. And so John and Casey are working there. We want to ask you to pray for them, for them to have a fruitful ministry as well as a safe return to us. Um, and, and an email we got this week from a lady named Rhonda Jackson, who we, uh, who we had in several months ago as we did one of our missions weekends. Rhonda has, has an exceptional story of faith where she basically packed up everything and moved to Honduras to start a children's home. Their ministry has greatly expanded, but she sent an email requesting prayer this week as they're running into some financial struggles as well as just some personnel struggles with people that had been in key positions leaving um, and just a lot of stuff going on and the, the sort of things that happen in a country when the rule of law is not necessarily enforced. And so we want to ask you to pray for Rhonda. The ministry there is Destino Del Reno and all the kids that they minister to. So in your prayer this week, please keep in mind 
KC and John is there in Mozambique, and Rhonda and her team there in Honduras, as they do a great work on behalf of our church in the name of Jesus. So I want to ask you to pray for them. We're going to pray, and then we'll uh, jump into Acts chapter 4. Father God, we thank you that, uh, that you have loved us in ways we don't understand, that, that all we can do is just sing of, of the greatness of the way you've loved us, because we, we can't even articulate it. And Father, we do know this, though. That for some reason, unbeknownst to us, you chose to set your love upon us and that that infinite love drove you to send your only son. That he died on a cross, taking the penalty for our sin, offering us forgiveness. That he rose again, giving us the newness of life and the promise of an eternity with you. The hope of the resurrection. So, Father, we thank You for that love that in the end brings You honor and glory and us joy. And we would pray that that truth would invade every aspect of life, that we would be courageous in seeking You because Your love for us is more important than anything. And pray that You would be with our missionaries around the world, specifically with John and KC as they're drilling wells. We pray that their ministry would be fruitful and that You would return them to us safely, that we might celebrate the work that Your Holy Spirit has done through them in Mozambique. And Father, with, with great expectation, we lift up Rhonda and the ministry of Dustino Doreno, all of the children that they serve in their community. Father, we pray that these, uh, these immediate hurdles that they're dealing with would not be difficult for them to overcome, but that by Your Spirit, You would provide at the right time, in the right way. And so that no other answer would be but your goodness. And Father, we lift them up in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to give a little bit of setup of what has gone on leading to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The church gets kicked off in Acts 2. Immediately there's about 3,000 believers. And in Acts chapter 3, we find Peter and John entering into the temple at the time of prayer. So it's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and they are headed into the temple, and there's a man that they see on their way in who apparently since birth has been crippled. He's been unable to walk. And so at some point, after his family was no longer able to care for him, he is taken every day by friends to the temple entrance where he begs. And so passerbys, as they go to pray, would give money to this man so that he could buy simple things like food. And that was his existence every day being taken to the temple so that he could beg. As the apostles walk by, they notice him. The text tells us that Peter looked intently at him, appears to be moved by compassion. And as the man is requesting money, Peter says, I don't have money, but what I do have, I give you. And so Peter heals this man. Immediately, he can walk. Now, I want you to imagine this, is that this man has been unable to move or walk, essentially laying on a mat, as we'll discover at the end of Acts 4, for about 40 years. Muscles would have atrophied and basically been non-existent. And immediately, he is able to walk. There is a visual, physical change in this man as new muscles are generated, and he is able to rise and walk. That, of course, causes a stir. And seizing the unique opportunity, Peter begins to proclaim the gospel message to the people there at the temple, specifically that Jesus, both Lord and Christ, has been raised from the dead. Now, that gets us maybe to Acts chapter 4, verse 1, where we'll pick up. This is when the authorities and officials at the temple have a chance to respond to what Peter and John have just done. 
says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who, were heard, who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. We have a church that started on day one at about 3,000 in some weeks, maybe months, but a short period of time later. Now there are 5,000 people who believe, and this is exceptional. There are healings and miracles taking place. God is moving in wonderful ways. And of course, someone has a problem with that because that's the way it always is. This is good news for the crippled man because now he can walk. This is bad news for the priests because their authority has been threatened. So I want to walk through who some of these people are that have gathered around and have, have decided to pull Peter and John in to question them and interrogate them. It tells us a few folks. The priests are there. Now, the high priest and the priests are not necessarily the same guys we find in the Old Testament. They seem to, at some point, have gotten away from some of the lineage-based of this person's son is now a priest and this person's son is now a priest as the Hasmonean dynasty, which is, if you get into history a little bit, just preceding when the Romans came in and took over, there was a free Jewish state under this Hasmonean dynasty. And they ruled things, and they had kind of tossed out the original priesthood and brought in their own. So it became a little bit less of a religious position and a little bit more of one of political prominence. The priests tended to be of the group of the Sadducees, and one of the things you'll know about them if you went to vacation Bible school is they're so sad, you see. You guys know that one? That's right. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. It seems that they had been really influenced by the Greek philosophy around them. And so their basic position was is that there was really no afterlife. This is all there is. And God's blessing upon you in this life in terms of comfort, ease, and wealth was really the basis that you were chewed for. So do what you have to do to get ahead because if it works, God is blessing you. And so if you go to the temple, you find Jesus a little ticked off in His ministry because they're ripping people off. They're manipulating people's religiosity for power, prominence, and prestige. And that's the high priest, typically of the party of the Sadducees. And so they're a little bit threatened for a couple reasons. One is that Jesus rose from the dead and they don't believe you can rise from the dead. That's a problem for their theological system when the apostles show up in the temple at their turf preaching Jesus rose from the dead and that in Christ there is a resurrection. So their theology has been threatened and that's a real problem if you present yourself as a spiritual or religious leader. Additionally, they're very threatened because the apostles are now doing miracles that they can't do. And as they preach the resurrection, they preach Jesus whom you killed, God resurrected. And they tell the people that their religious leaders are in complete and total opposition to God. And so that's a threatening statement. And so they drag them in. There's a few other people involved in it. The Sadducees, the temple guard, and some other folks, the teachers of the law all show up and collaborate with each other against the apostles. It's evening, so they really don't know what to do with them, so they say, let's just let's throw them in the cell 
and give them a night to sleep on the thing. And so they put the guys into the jail cell to wait it out and figure out what they're going to do in the morning. So morning comes, and that's in chapter 4, verse 5. It says, The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them. They began to question them. By what power do you do this? And so that's their plan, is they're going to get everyone together. This is a group called the Sanhedrin. These are the same group of guys that convicted Jesus and requested that the Romans put him to death. It's made up of a few different people. It's about 70 men. You've got the high priest, some of the other priests, as well as some local rabbis of authority. That's the teachers of the law. Now, generally speaking, when it says the teachers of the law in the New Testament, you're referring to people who were kind of of the camp of the Pharisees. These guys were local leaders in the synagogue, street preachers, and kind of your pastors and elders like we would have it. And so these guys generally disagreed with the Sadducees on things, but they were all part of this group called the Sanhedrin, as well as some other leaders that were just maybe community or civic leaders, all a part of this group of people that are going to drag the apostles before them so that they can make an account of why they have healed this man. There's some real heavy hitters in the audience. There's a guy named Annas who Luke references as the high priest. He's actually the previous high priest, kind of the former high priest. The current one is a guy named Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law. So when, when Luke says that Annas is the high priest, it's not that he's inaccurate. It's in the same way that we would continue to call former presidents Mr. President. It additionally points out that Annas was kind of the power broker behind the whole thing. Because for years, until AD 70, every high priest that comes is from Annas' family, either a son, son son-in-law, or grandson. So he's a big shot. He's kind of the guy pulling the strings behind everything. You have Caiaphas, who's the current high priest. He references John, who is probably Jonathan, who's another son of Annas, who becomes the high priest next. And then it just says, generally, some other men from his family which we could only assume at least one or two of them since it appears all of the men in the family at some point were the high priest. We've got one former high priest, the current, and several future guys that are going to be high priests. And so they drag in the heavy hitters to confront these Galilean fishermen who are uneducated peasants. A pretty intimidating experience if you are Peter and John. And so they're drug in. And the question is this, by what power or what name did you do this? We see the guys healed, we're not arguing that, how did this happen? And so Peter takes the opportunity again to preach the gospel, it's in chapter 4 verse 8. They ask a question, Peter will provide a bit more of an answer than they wanted. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the peoples, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all of the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healed. Then in reference to Jesus, he says, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's a little bit more than they ask for. 
said, if you really want to know if, if healing a guy that can't walk is so much of a crime, let me give you kind of some insight into how this went down. The man couldn't walk. We noticed it. And in the name of Jesus, he was healed. By the way, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, that you crucified, that you sentenced to death, but God resurrected. By the way, this Jesus that, that you crucified, he's the capstone of the line of David. What that essentially means, guys, is that as the succession of David's family, of David's line, Jesus was the end of the road. He was the king that they had finally waited for that would rule as a descendant of David forever. He is the capstone. He is the end of that. You rejected him, but he is the one that will be ruling and reigning for eternity as the son of David. And quote Psalm 118 in doing that. Additionally, religious men and leaders, you're in desperate need of salvation and Jesus is your only hope. The implications of it are twofold. One is that you are in complete opposition to God. That's what he tells the religious authorities. God is doing one thing and you are opposed to it. God has resurrected Jesus because you killed him. You dishonored him. God has exalted him. You are opposed to the movement of God. And second, he says, but there is a means of salvation and his name is Jesus and that's the only shot you've got. At that, we might expect, uh, was it George Beverly Shea to come up and sing Just As I Am and, and all 70 of them to come forward and accept Jesus and repent and be saved? That did not happen. Their response is the opposite of that. Look with me in verse 13. When they saw their courage, the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that the men had been with Jesus, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they kick the apostles out, they huddle together, and the conclusion is we can't really argue with what they've done. Everyone knows it. To be honest, we're a bit afraid of what the people will do if we crack the hammer on these guys. So what we'll do is we'll bring them in and we'll try to scare them. We'll try to threaten them into not speaking about Jesus because certainly they can remember what we did to Jesus. We could do it to them too. They're afraid to do anything today, the Sanhedrin is. So they figure, if we're afraid, maybe we can threaten them and fear will motivate them as well. And so that's the plan. To threaten them into silence. They didn't get what they expected out of Peter there either. In verse 18, it says, They called them in again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And this is awesome. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. 
For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. And they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is interesting. Peter and John are drugged before the group of men who are the highest authorities in the Jewish people. Guys that they would have grown up respecting, looking up to, wanting to emulate and be like. Men who they at one point held in high regard. If you had had trading cards back then, these would have been the ones that you hung on to. You wouldn't put this in the spokes of your bikes. Not the Annis rookie card. That one gets a special cover for it. It goes in a drawer somewhere or maybe a display case. These are big shots. These are heavy hitters that they would have greatly respected. At some point, their opinion shifts of these men as they begin to persecute Jesus and the apostles are are thoroughly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. Certainly that break is completely made at the point that these men send Jesus to his death. But nonetheless, a very intimidating experience. I'm sure that the high priest and all of his buddies really expected these humble Galilean fishermen to just take their lumps, go home to Galilee and begin fishing again. Their response is ridiculous in human terms. Men who have the capacity to put them to death, they say, guys, I just got a question for you. What's a better call, that we should obey you or God? Because the two of you guys are telling us different things. And the communicated message is, again, you're in opposition to God, and second, we're not afraid of you. Who should we listen to? Should we fear God or fear man? This is a substantial issue in the church today that I felt like we ought to jump into a little bit and provide a few examples in terms of dealing with our world where the fear of man attempts to trap us, as well as dealing with folks in the church where the fear of man stunts our growth. And so I want to just jump into a few particular issues where this idea of fearing man over God is a challenge. Proverbs 29 gives us a great bit of insight in verse 25. It said, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. Other translations say a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. If you fear men and you do things because you like to be liked, you want to be wanted, you need to be needed, it will be a snare or a trap. But if you trust the Lord, you will be kept safe. Many of us desire to be well-respected among other people, and because of that, we follow what will get us results in the eyes of men and not what will please our Heavenly Father. And because of that, we find ourselves in a snare. Particularly for the church, in the culture we live in, the fear of man will tempt us to not represent Christ at all or to do it in a way that is unacceptable. And so first, I want to jump into maybe outside of the church as we engage with non-believers a couple hot-button issues that you can expect the fear of man to tempt you to waffle on. So I want to talk about the first one that Peter gets to in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he says that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's the exclusivity of Jesus, that Jesus is the only means to the Father. This is an incredibly offensive statement to our culture. So if you share the gospel with someone and you explain to them that they are a sinner and that Jesus has died for them offering forgiveness and that their only hope of forgiveness and eternal life is found in Jesus, 
you can expect at least three responses to come back immediately. The first one will be to say that you're arrogant. That you think you know the truth and no one else does. This is one of the beautiful things about the gospel, is the gospel is the most humbling truth in the world. The gospel is very humble. The gospel says this, I am a wretched, miserable sinner with no hope of redeeming myself, and that God in His infinite love, apart from anything I've ever even thought about doing, chose to love me, and that He sent His Son to die on a cross to forgive me and bring me close to Him. I have done nothing to earn it. I'm completely morally bankrupt without Jesus. I am weak and He is strong. That's not arrogant. In fact, the folks that disagree with us, that tell us that, generally speaking, have some arrogance that's thinly masked under a false humility. Because the arrogance that that those who reject the gospel generally have is that there is no God who will be worthy of judging them. And if there is a God who can judge them, surely He would look at their lives in relationship to everyone else and conclude that they are worthy of His love. That's an arrogant position. The gospel is pure humility. Because we have done nothing to receive this love, God has acted on our behalf and we have accepted it by His grace and the movement of His Spirit. It's all a work of God, start to finish. Now, that also means that when we proclaim the gospel, we do so humbly. Because even if the truth of the gospel is humbling, that doesn't mean we always are humble. Another response that you'll hear to that is that that, that's really sad that so many people that God would send so many people to hell. And and we say, you're right. It is very sad that people die and go to hell. And that's why we are convinced that the proclamation of the gospel, both near and far, locally, around the world, is so important. Because God wants to save people. He loves saving people. And we want to be a part of that. Because we see it as, as very sad as well. And that's why God has done this. Because God, moved with compassion, saw our need and provided a way. We agree. The third response you can expect to hear is all roads lead to the same place. Whatever that means, it's absolutely ridiculous. Did you know that you can drive for hours and hours and hours and hours on I-10 and never reach Dallas? Did you know that? You've got to take I-45 from here. There's really, that's what you have to do. You know why? All roads don't lead to the same place. It's absolute stupidity. No one plans a trip that way, yet we're willing to stake our eternity on it? Come on. But we contend that Jesus is the only way. Our culture hates that. What it wants us to say is that our faith is private and Jesus is cool for me and whatever you want to do is fine for you. But if I love someone, if I love someone, I can't tell them that. The second issue in culture that's a bit of a hot button that you will be pressured by our culture to waffle on is the issue of homosexuality. Our culture says everything's okay. That's their business. As long as they don't hurt anyone, the Bible says it's a sin. Romans chapter 1 presents this depiction of culture as it spins out of control towards sin, as, as rejecting the truth of God occurs and sin just becomes rampant. And it says towards the bottom of that, when you see a culture really turning from God and rejecting His truth, homosexuality and lesbianism becomes acceptable. It's a sin. We don't need to beat people over the head. 
that struggle with that sin, it's a sin. We have to call it what it is. Otherwise, we run the risk of being false teachers even if we go to a Bible church. But I want to take you to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, I think gives us a great mandate in terms of how we engage individuals that we meet that wrestle with homosexuality. It says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So as a pause there, people whose lives are categorized and described under these terms, rather than a faith in Jesus, people who are still in their sin and unwilling to repent and turn from them and turn to Jesus, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, look at verse 11. And this is what some of you were. This church in Corinth was full of people who fell under that list. Who heard the gospel because someone loved them and turned to Jesus. This is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We have friends, family members, co-workers that are homosexual and their perspective is, is that the church hates them. What their perspective ought to be is that we believe that's wrong and we love them dearly because Jesus loves them. Because Jesus died for their sin to offer them forgiveness and that no sin is not forgivable. That church in Corinth was made up of people who fell into that list. From the beginning of the church, it has been reaching out in love, proclaiming the gospel to people that were homosexual. Because we love them. Because God loves them. And He desires to say like He did to that sinful woman, go and sin no more. But in order to get to that point, we have to be honest and upfront and say that it is a sin. It's a sin like adultery is a sin, like pornography is a sin. It's a sin. Now, we're going to get a quick response from anyone that we're judgmental. And the only thing I could say to that is, look, we all have sexual ethics. Something, everyone says something is wrong, right? There are certain things that, that you ask any person in America, regardless of their sexual orientation, is this wrong? And they'll say yes. Well, are they judgmental as well? Or do we just need to recognize that we all draw the line somewhere and that the Christian draws the line based upon God's revelation in the Bible, that that is what educates and defines our ethics in terms of sexuality rather than our own opinion or the opinion of those we hang out with. We all make judgment calls in this area. Our judgments and our decisions upon sexual ethics are defined by the Bible. That's our response. We believe it to be a sin and we believe Jesus can offer forgiveness to any sin. Now, inside the church, we run into a few things as well. The first one, and the one that we see the most, guys, is, is we put on masks to appear a certain way, a polished, pretty veneer that's kind of saint skeet rather than the real skeet. 
The problem is when I do that, if I put up a, a veneer and only show you what I want you to see and don't show you any of the ugly parts, I'll never grow. I'll never go anywhere in my faith walk because I'm not being honest with myself or anyone around me what struggles I have. If you have a, a, a pattern of sin that you're caught in that you can't find yourself breaking, you keep it to yourself, chances are you won't overcome it. I'm just going to be honest there. If your marriage is falling apart and you keep that to yourself, you don't share it with anyone, it's probably going to continue to fall apart. Because the reason it's falling apart is usually because you don't know what to do. And when you don't know what to do, you have a really hard time teaching yourself what to do. In uh, college, I tried to teach myself to play the guitar. The problem is I don't know how to play the guitar. So I'm a really bad guitar teacher. That's the way some of us are when it comes to our marriages, to the raising kids, to, to trying to live the Christian life. We don't know what we're doing, and that's okay, guys. There's no shame in that. But you have to admit to someone else that you don't know what you're doing and go to someone that, that you think the Lord has given wisdom and ask for some help. The reason we don't do that is fear. I'm afraid that once you really know me, you won't love me. Or you'll think less of me. And that's fear. And because of that, if I choose that path and wear the mask, my growth will be stunted. It's also an issue when it comes into leading in the church. right? We, we all love each other. We want each other to be happy. And so we try to make decisions. But no one decision ever pleases everyone. And one of the ways you can make it real easy on your leaders is to just not have some opinions on little things. So we don't fall into the, the, the temptation to please people rather than God. But the fear of man is a real thing everywhere. And here's the real problem with it, guys. The real problem with the fear of man is that Jesus has called me to love. The call and command of Jesus on my life is to love God and to love others. And when it comes to loving others, if I'm afraid of you, I don't love you. Fear and love can't live side by side. I want you to look at 1 John chapter 4. We can put that on the screen for the guys. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I want you to see this. Fear and love cannot live together. They are not good roommates. Because fear has to do with the consequence. If I'm afraid of you, I will do what you want because I'm afraid of a negative repercussion that might occur if I don't do what you want. That's what fear drives me to do. In the end, fear is selfishly motivated. I make decisions if I'm afraid because of a negative consequence I desire to avoid. Fear is selfishly driven. But love, when I love someone, it's about their good. And so I do what the Lord would say is best for them because I love them. Love is selfless. And fear is selfish. They can't live together. So the fear of man, the problem is this, is it runs at its very core contradictory to the command to love God and to love others. Because if I'm afraid of you, I'll try to manipulate you. And I'll do what you want to see when you need to see it so that you stay happy and I can placate you and then do what I want. That's how fear plays out in relationships. But love... Involves honesty and authenticity and transparency. When I truly love someone, what you see is what you get. 
that doesn't mean that I'm obnoxious or rude. It doesn't mean that I say things in order to wound. But that I say things that you might grow. That I do things in the lives of those that I'm around, those that I care about, for their good. Just because that's the pattern Jesus gave us, isn't it? When Jesus heads to Jerusalem for the final week of his life, knowing that he will be turned over to the authorities, beaten, bruised, crucified, killed, and buried. He is keenly aware of that reality, yet he goes anyway. Because he loves. The challenge in front of each of us is to love well. To love at great cost. The only way we can do that is to yield to the Holy Spirit as the apostles did in Acts 4 so that we're not afraid anymore. So that we can trust God and love others. I would pray that this is a body that loves well. That by submitting to the Holy Spirit our issues of fear in terms of how people on the outside will perceive us if we share the gospel and what the scriptures really say to them, or how people on the inside might respond if we show them what really goes on in our lives. But they will trust the Lord and they will love each other.